One of the reviewers for a book written by today's guest says, and I quote, it challenges us to stand with the de demonized so that the demonizing stops. These are the words of Gregory Boyle, who is the founder of Homeboy Industries. In a moment, we will meet today's guest, and you will see whether or not you agree with this reviewer. Hello, everyone. My name is Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk. Today's guest has authored a book entitled Miller's Children, and our guest is Dr. Jim Garbarino. The subtitle um, to this book is really quite interesting. The subtitle is Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us. The reason that I give you the subtitle is because at first blush, you see a book, it's called Miller's Children. You figure it's a book about parenting. Perhaps some ways it is. Dr. Jim Garbarino, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you. Glad to be with you. You served as a psychological expert witness in murder cases since 1994, focusing on issues of child and adolescent development. How did you come to be such an expert in such a really difficult area for people to even think about? Well, it wasn't part of my plan. When I got my Ph.D. in 1973 at Cornell I really expected to emulate the career of my mentor, Yuri Bronfenbrenner. But over the years, I just uh, I studied child abuse and neglect. I sort of was led into studying the effects of community violence. When I moved to Chicago, I had the opportunity to visit war zones around the world and study the impact of war zone trauma. And out of all of this emerged uh, a fledgling understanding of how the the traumatic background of kids at home and in the community would conspire to create a kind of war zone mentality that, that led them to be at high risk for committing murder. And then um, just out of the blue one day, I got a call from a lawyer in, uh, uh, in Wisconsin who asked if I'd come up and testify in a case she had of a teenage girl, a 15-year-old girl who had murdered another teenager. And that you know, again, wasn't something I sought out, but that was something that was dropped in my lap. As it turned out, in that case, the judge ruled my testimony irrelevant and inadmissible. The case eventually went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said you should have let Garbarino testify. But in the intervening years, other lawyers called, and the word got around on the Internet, on various sites, and I began to do this work. Uh, bringing a developmental perspective to these issues of uh, lethal violence. The idea of murder is brings up all kinds of stuff for all sorts of people anyway. But when you think about a child murderer, that's really a bit of a challenge. It's a bit of a leap for a lot of people. Um, it's also interesting that your testimony in that in the case you just described was initially uh, considered inadmissible. So perhaps we have come a very long way in terms of understanding uh, that a child, a person's background has a great deal to do with what they're doing now in the moment and what they are potentially likely to do in the future. 
Yeah, these 25 years, I think, really have seen an evolution in legal thinking and to some degree in the application of developmental psychology to these kinds of cases. On the legal side, uh, eventually the Supreme Court began to weigh in and saying that, no, kids had to be given a special treatment. They needed special protections because of their special developmental vulnerability. Uh, first, the court said you couldn't execute them. Uh, and then the court said you couldn't give them life without parole for non-violent offenses. And eventually, in this Miller versus Alabama ruling in 2012, the court said you can't give them mandatory life without parole, even for murder, because of the special characteristics of teenagers, the immaturity of their brain, and, and so on. So that was happening in tandem I think with a shift in the kind of psychological expertise that was being thought relevant. And say in 1994, the judge ruled my developmental psychology irrelevant to this case. But by the time of Miller versus Alabama, the bulk of the evidence presented to the court came from developmental psychology. So whereas in the past, uh, the sort of expert witness work was almost exclusively being done by clinical psychologists who were focusing on diagnosing kids uh, more and more. And I think I've had played some small role in this. It's come to see that developmental psychology is actually the more relevant subspecialty for understanding how teenagers get to the point where they commit a murder and of equal or greater importance, why you can't predict from their murder what they can and will become in the years that follow as their brains mature, as they become educated, as they transform their thinking and feeling. And that's really where the book Miller's Children comes in. It's sort of a testimony based on the first of these cases I worked on where teenagers committed murder and now, years later, we're getting a second look. Tell us a little bit um, about the Miller versus Alabama case. What, what was going on with that situation? Well, it was too, back in the early 1990s, there was a sort of moral panic, as it's often called, about the rise of super predators. There were several very prominent people who, uh, who used this term, who promoted this term. And the idea was that there would be increasing numbers of kids without conscience who really were moral monsters. Uh, it was very relevant today because some of the debate about the crime bill that Joe Biden is being criticized for supporting was part of that time and place. And, and states responded around the country by dropping often dramatically the age at which teenagers could be tried as adults for violent crimes. And in many states imposed these mandatory life without parole sentences if convicted in Wisconsin, for example, any kid who's 14 or older is automatically tried an adult court as an adult for a violent crime. And you, it's a very difficult process to get moved back to juvenile crime. So this was happening out in the public domain at the same time that developmental psychology and neurobiology was documenting that human brains don't mature till about age 25, and that the form this immaturity takes uh, particularly affects the what's called executive function, decision-making, weighing costs and benefits, and affective or emotional regulation, managing emotions effectively. And teenagers generically are particularly prone to problems in both of those areas. They, they value 
short-term rewards over long-term risk and penalty. They misunderstand their emotions and the emotions of others. So just generically, they're, they're at risk. And this was what the court saw in the evidence that was presented. The specific Miller case involved, I think, a 14-year-old boy who uh, was involved in a murder and under the law was given this mandatory life without parole. And you know, it took decades. I think that happened maybe back in the, even the 80s, early 90s. Took decades before the court eventually reviewed his case and listened to the developmental psychology evidence and made a change. You know what? What's interesting um, is that you know, we certainly know that there are people such as yourself and many others who believe, certainly now, in paying attention to the developmental aspect of what's going on with the child, the traumas, the impact of all of these things that can generate the kind of behavior that we're talking about. But for those people who are victims, if you will, of a child murderer, you know that there are some who will say and have said, the fact that it was a child who killed my loved one, and I know you want to pay attention to that, doesn't make my loved one any less dead. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, I'd like you to respond to that perspective that some people have. Folks, okay. this is Pamela Brewer. You're listening to Mind Talk, and I'm having a conversation with Dr. Jim Garbarino, who is author of Miller's Children, Why Giving Teenage Killers a Second Chance Matters for All of Us. We'll be right back. who say just because a child killed my loved one doesn't mean that the child should have special treatment. My loved one is still dead. What do you say to them? Well, I think there are two kinds of responses. One is, you know, there is this expression, if you can do the crime, you can do the time. Um, Most people would say, uh, you know, a three-year-old child is capable of firing a, a gun. Does that mean we should arm three-year-olds? I think all but the most extreme gun nuts would say, no, obviously you can't give guns to three-year-old children. So the capacity to do the act uh, when you push it you know, even younger pretty clearly shows that it doesn't match up with what consequences should be. So it's really a question of where you draw the line. Now, when you actually look at the lives of these teenagers who commit murders, um, when you hear their stories, when you find out where they came from, in many cases, people's perspective on them shifts because they, they begin to understand why this is not really a, quote, senseless act of violence. In fact, it makes sense if you look at their history. Uh, and it does reflect their limitations. Um, you know, most people have some way of getting at this idea that the limitations, if you, uh, you know, if, if, for example, somebody put a gun to your mother's head and said, 
all right, I'm going to shoot your mother in the head unless you kill this other person. Most people would have some understanding and compassion about that. Um, so that what I think I need to do is find the situation that people can relate to, to see that most people do believe there should be special considerations for kids and then walk it as far as you can. The second thing is that um, in the long run, forgiveness and understanding on the part of victims' families is good for them. It's healing for them. So even if you're looking at it from a self-interested point of view, they really don't profit psychologically or developmentally by holding on to their anger, their rage, their sense of need for retaliation, retribution, and punishment. So I think when, when you really understand all the dynamics in the system, it's healthier all around. Uh, but of course, forgiveness should not be given easily or quickly. You know, we're not talking about, you know, you commit a murder, have a nice day. Uh, I've come to the view that most of these kids who kill do need 20 years to mature and then recover and rehabilitate and transform. Uh, there was a study in Florida that found that when they were sentenced to 10 years, the recidivism rate was very, very high because by the time they're just getting a mature brain, now you're letting them out and not giving them years to use that mature brain to really transform themselves. So there is a there is a dynamic, a sort of dance between the moral and the developmental, the moral and the scientific on these issues. But I think the more people hear and get it, the better they are. I was testifying in a case recently where the father of the boy who'd been killed uh, going into court wanted nothing more than this perpetrator to remain in prison the rest of his life, period. But after he heard the testimony, after I spoke with him, after I sort of explained some of this, but at the end of the hearing, he went over to the defendant and said, it, it, it's awful what you did, but I understand now, and so I'm in a position to forgive you. And for the father, it was like a huge weight being lifted from his shoulders. Sure. So that's part of it that people need to understand. You talk about the impact of chronic trauma on the developing brain. Tell us a little bit about what you know in that area. Well, as I said, you know, the normal developmental pathway is for brains to be immature until the mid-20s. So teenagers as a class suffer from this, if you will, disability. Um, the second thing we know is that whatever capacity kids have to do good executive function, decision-making, and good emotional regulation, but that deteriorates in high-stress situations, in situations of arousal. You know, it, it applies to sexuality. It's one thing to sit in a calm classroom and talk about uh, abstinence. It's very different if you're in the back seat of the Chevy and everybody's breathing hard to think clearly and understand clearly about decisions. What's often called hot cognition. That's much more difficult for teenagers to perform up to their best level in a highly arousing situations. The other thing is that the teenagers are most concerned about don't just have those normal teenage limitations. Their traumatic histories often uh, in, impose limitations in addition. So they sort of suffer from adolescence squared, the normal issues and the accumulation of uh, risk and trauma in their background. Why? Because, you know, when it's chronic, particularly early in life, it shortchanges the more sophisticated parts of the brain in favor of the more primitive parts of the brain. Uh, that's not, in most cases, a permanent, irre 
deemable irremediable condition because we know that brains can change in adulthood when they have different experiences. So you have that going on. You have the fact that they may have very powerful uh, feelings that are largely unconscious to them. For example, uh, kids who've been abandoned by their mothers may carry around a, a ton of rage about it, and that may be transferred into somebody else later on. Uh, kids who've been abused by their fathers may carry a lot of rage around that may spill out uh, particularly if you put a gun in their hand or a knife in their hand towards somebody else. So there are complicated dynamics that the kids with histories of trauma have, uh, particularly chronic trauma rather than a single incident, and particularly when it starts young in life. For example, I often ask these guys, uh, did you ever see anybody get shot? Yes. How old were you? Eight. And I'll say, well, if we took all the eight-year-olds in your neighborhood, how many of them out of 100 would have seen somebody get shot by age eight? And they say, oh, 95. But then, interestingly, I say, well, what if we took 100 eight-year-olds at random from America? How many do you think at random would have 100 would have seen somebody get shot? And they might say, oh, 50, 60. And if I tell them it's more like five, 5%, they're often shocked because they don't realize that they've grown up in a particularly toxic environment, which, which colors... The development covers the way they think about things, the way they feel about things. And part of the recovery process is to sort of get back into a normal range about where violence and trauma fit in, should fit in with human experience. You know, I I, I sort of joked uh, earlier and said that a book titled Miller's Children, on some levels you would think, oh, this is a book about parenting. But in fact, as you talk about the impact of trauma, on the lives of little ones uh, and of adolescents, perhaps it underscores for parents or potential parents the power and the damage of living in a chronically stressful environment. And that's not to say that parents go out and, and, and create that stressful environment because they have nothing else to do. Um, I mean, certainly there are circumstances that arise. But to be clear that the, the lives of little ones are being very much affected by chronic trauma, I think is really important for folks to really understand. Yeah, I think it is. You know, trauma has become one of the organizing frameworks for understanding problems in human development. And we did a study many years ago in the Middle East, which we found that sort of the best predictor of how kids there would deal with the trauma of being involved, you know, exposed to political violence and so on, was the degree to which their mothers were psychologically available to them to process their experiences. So the implications of that are, one, that, you know, a lot of these kids, particularly in the most traumatic environments, community environments, have mothers who themselves are traumatized or psychologically unavailable for other reasons. And so they're not able, willing, capable of doing that processing that can help a child resolve trauma. And the other thing, of course, is that in many cases, it's the families themselves that are generating the trauma because of abuse and neglect. Is there a difference between the sexes when it comes to child murderers? Do they tend to be male or female, or is it really a mix? Well, they're like most forms of physical violence, particularly the, the more severe forms of violence, 
it's predominantly a male, a male phenomenon. I have worked on female cases, but they're, you know, they're, it's barely 10%. I would say most, I think typically people would say 90% male, 10% female. And that's across, you know, across the age span, really, um, you know, to the point where many years ago I was giving a lecture in, uh, Nebraska, and somebody said, can you tell us something specific we could do to reduce the level of violence in Nebraska? And I said, yes, tell everybody with a penis to move to Iowa. Because if you, it's so strongly associated with maleness, both biologically and culturally, that, um, you know, to talk about violence without recognizing its gendered nature uh, is pretty important. Um, you know, there, is, there has been some closing of the gap in sort of low-level physical aggression between boys and girls, but it, I don't think there's any evidence that it really has reached more severe forms and most particularly homicide. So uh, in my book, Miller's Children, I think, uh, and I make mention of a couple of girls, but it's primarily boys and teenage boys and young males who are who are the involved and who generate most of this has been still is. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'd like you to tell us in 30 seconds or less, if you can, about Johnny H, the boy who was intent on launching his career as a serial killer. And he started with his 13 year old twin sister. We're going to take a break folks. And we'll be right back. Because of time constraints, I'm not going to ask you to tell us about Johnny H. And, and all that went into his behavior at the age of 13. But I would like to know, where is he today? Well, he's still in prison. You know, as I, there's a ch- people say, do you think every teenage killer is capable of rehabilitating? And the answer is no. There's a whole chapter in the book called Are There Exceptions? And the two categories are kids are so profoundly damaged early in childhood and these kids who are on their way to becoming, you know, full-blown psychopaths. And Johnny H. was one of them. He had been in prison for 10 years when I met him. I don't think he had changed one iota. Uh, he, he just lacked this basic capacity for empathy with others, and that's one of the hallmarks of being a psychopath. There are those who say, as you know, Psychopaths are born that way, and there are those who say, no, society creates them. Where do you come down on that uh, conversation? Well, I think there's some of both. I think there are kids who have a genetic risk for becoming psychopaths. However, if they live in really supportive pro-social environments, uh, they can live with that risk and not fulfill it. Um, There are others who, you know, had they not been subject to catastrophic abuse in early infancy and early childhood could well have led normal lives. So like most things, there's an interplay in which the biology of it and the psychology and sociology of it uh, play, you know, in some cases one is 
predominant. The other case is the other is predominant. Uh, so I think they are. Some are made and some are born, and most are uh, made worse. <laughs> uh, their their potential for it is made worse by their experience. So I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out biology or society in, in most of these cases. What is your sense of the cure, the magic pill? Can you give us a magic pill to fix all of this? I know one magic pill is to make everybody with a penis move someplace else, but are there any <laughs> others? <laughs> well, you know, there's, there's certainly there's evidence that we can reduce the level of homicide among young offenders. There's a project in Chicago that cut it in half by offering mentoring anger management, and a jobs program, because those three things tap a lot of the motivation that were driving kids into violent crime and thus into murder. So it's, I, you know, it's very hard to imagine we could ever eliminate this. You know, even the most nonviolent societies around the world still have some murders. You know, we were at the upper end of this in many ways because of the availability of guns, because of economic inequality, because of racism, because of all the factors usually cite. So I think the more we there is a potential for social reform that will diffuse a lot of this. And then the uh, recognizing that anytime a kid experiences parental rejection, he should be a candidate for intensive psychological services, the process, that sense of loss and rage and abandonment. So I think there are pieces that we can do a kind of patchwork prevention, as well as continuing to work on some of these underlying toxic influences in American society and life. You have spent much of your lifetime working with these young people who, as we've said, so much of society is really willing to throw away just out of hand. What impact has this had on you? Well, you know, before the Miller decision, most of my work was on death penalty cases, which are very discouraging in a sense because the best outcome from the defense point of view is you don't execute the person and get life in prison. So actually this work has been very inspiring because I'm able to look at what a kid was like at 16. I can read the clinical assessments and the social history. And now 20 years later, I'm sitting in front of not just somebody who's rehabilitated, but somebody who's transformed into a remarkable positive human being. And that's very inspiring and uplifting. So it's very nice for me to be sort of the latter part of my career at age 72 to spending so many time with success cases like this. And uh, I do find it inspiring and, uh, and validating. Tell us where we can get more information about Miller's children and, and perhaps just the work you do in general. Well, you know, people can track me down to email me. I'm pretty responsive to emails. I think uh, my book, Miller's Children, you know, it's pretty widely available for the usual sources. And that's sort of the, the state of the art on this. I think it's the first book on this topic. Uh, it's, I think, make, having an influence with uh, lawyers and judges and other psychologists, as well as people who, who are inclined to, to do more than just declare these kids to be monsters and walk away from them. So I think that's something people can do. There is online a YouTube lecture that I gave about at Cornell University when, this, when Miller's Children first came out in March of 2018, a lot of people have found that very useful and accessible, and that's not hard to find. Okay. And so, again, folks, Miller's Children by James Garbarino. 
Dr. Garbarino, thank you, truly thank you for the work that you do and for spending time with us today. Thank you. I appreciate you asking. Folks, thank you for joining us on this edition of Mind Talk. Mind Talk is brought to you as an educational public service and is not intended to replace any work that you may choose to do with a mental health, medical health, or other provider of your choice. MindTalk is available to you on demand by going to mindtalk.org. That's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K.org, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Alexa, and more. MindTalk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. And folks, if you would like to be in touch with me directly, you can always send an email to Pamela at mindtalk.org. Again, that's M-Y-N-D-T-A-L-K.org. And remember, too, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care. Thank you.